ourselves uh, with another sensitive, emotionally charged issue. Uh, and in light of that today, uh, I want to ask for grace from you as we talk about this particular topic of immigration. Uh, I want to first of all state that due to the complexity and nature uh, of this topic, I will only be skimming the surface of, surface of this issue. Uh, and as a result of that, there will be many things that are left unaddressed. And so I do apologize up front if, you ex if I disappoint your expectations and do ask for your forgiveness for that. Uh, we can talk after service if you have more things you would like to share. Uh, so uh, as we get ready to get into this, just want to just ask for that uh, in, in light of the realities of, of what's going on. And so uh, I want to ask you to turn to Leviticus chapter 19. I'm going to be reading verses 33 and 34 as one of our focus texts for today. And then if you wouldn't mind standing out of respect for God and his word, I would appreciate it. And we'll get into it here in just a moment. <clears throat> so uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you have another version, that's okay. It may read just a little bit differently than what I'm going to be reading. You can just follow along silently in your Bibles. So verse 33 of Leviticus chapter 19, we find these words written. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You should treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Let's uh, ask God's blessing on our time as we think about his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to uh, look at your word as it relates to a issue that's pressing upon us. And we do ask that you would have mercy upon us as we talk about these things um, to some degree and help us to, to orient ourselves, uh, to begin to have a starting point to move towards uh, a more biblical view as it relates to this. And I pray that you would grant grace, that you would open our hearts and minds, that your spirit would do the work so that you receive the glory and the honor, uh, and we can walk out of here uh, with a desire and, and a mindset that seeks to please you uh, in every area of life, including this one. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering lambs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. You might be familiar with the words of Emma Lazarus, which were penned back in 1883 under the title of The New Colossus. Uh, she penned these words in an effort to help 
uh, in a fundraising effort to raise money for the pedestal upon which the sta Statue of Liberty would rest. Uh, of course, it wasn't until 20 years later in 1903 that those words were put on a plaque and then uh, placed within the pedestal uh, for others who would come and visit to read. Now, what's interesting about the poem, as it contributes a view towards immigration, we find that as we look through immigration history uh, here in our specific country, that these words only exhibit a partial view of our attitude towards immigrants. Interestingly, just a year prior in 1882, May 6th, to be precise, the federal government had passed an act called the Chinese Exclusion Act. If you wonder what the act was about, the name makes it self-evident. Thankfully, in 1943, Congress passed another law that repealed that act. And one of these two things allow the tension to see here for us is that immigration has had a long and checkered past within our country, the United States of America. And immigration still affects us to this very day. Just this past week, there were three things related to immigration that came up uh, in the news. I'll share them with you briefly. One, the Supreme Court ruled that the par public charge rule could take effect nationwide. Uh, this has been a long-standing rule from uh, ancient days uh, in our country's history that has been played out. And basically what it does is, is allows those who get to determine whether or not a person is eligible for citizenship to have stricter requirements so that the person who's applying does not become what is referred to as public charge. That is that those who are legal immigrants uh, can, can be uh, held back or with, uh, withdrawn from being able to become citizens if they're going to need public assistance such as Medicaid, housing uh, vouchers or food stamps. And if they're going to, to be what might be viewed as, as a drain on the economy, uh, citizenship can be withheld. Uh, two, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals uh, here close to us in New York ruled that the White House could withhold grant money from states and cities that refused to cooperate with immigration authorities, those places being recently titled under the, the idea of what we call sanctuary cities or sanctuary states. Three, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals out on the, on the West Coast uh, ruled that the Migrant Protection Protocols Program uh, would need to be restricted in the sense of this protocol said that anyone who was waiting trial here in the United States had to, if they had come from Central America, had to wait in Mexico until they were able to, to their court date came up for them to come to the United States. And, and, the, and the court had decided at that point that in light of safety concerns that they would no longer, uh, they would rule that no longer this had to be enforced. But uh, the executive branch uh, bargained with them and so there's been a temporary reprieve uh, and so that they're not instituting their ruling at this time. And the only reason I share these things with you is to let you know that immigration is still a pressing issue in our context today. And through my reading over the last week or so, as it deals with this topic, I've come to understand that, that this is a very complex and complicated matter. Dr. Scott Ray, who is a professor of Christian ethics at Talbot, put it this way, he said, in considering immigration, there are both moral and public policy dimensions to think through. Uh, the moral aspect concerns how immigrants should be viewed and treated by those who are long-term residents in their new country. The public policy or legal aspect has to do with what immigration law should look like. And if we take a look at it from, from a standpoint of trying to understand this 
whole issue of what's going on, we realize that there are numerous things that are the contributing factors to us understanding uh, how to think about public policy and uh, our role as Christians and things like that, but it's complex. And so when we first start off is who are we talking about when we think about these issues of immigration? What groups of people? Well, as it pertains to the law, there are mainly three groups that I was able to ascertain that we're referring to. Uh, to asylum seekers, or those who might be referred to as asylees, to refugees, and then to immigrants. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security defines refugees and asylees in this way. A refugee is a person outside his or her country of nationality who is unable or unwilling to return to his, his or her country of nationality because of persecution or a well-founded fear of persecution on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. An asylee is a person who meets the definition of a refugee and is already present in the United States or is seeking admission at a port of entry. In regards to immigrants, Dr. Daniel Carroll, who is an uh, Old Testament professor at uh, Denver Seminary and has worked years with uh, immigration issues, defines an immigrant in this way. He says, immigrants, in contrast, are those who have moved to another country of their own volition and are, are usually seeking lengthy or permanent residence. Now, what's interesting is that within this group of immigrants, there's another group, a, a subgroup, which the law refers to as illegal aliens. And I would like to give some context as we talk about or think about the idea of the illegal alien picture. Uh, I'm going to refer to this group for the sake of sensitivity uh, to, uh, to them as undocumented immigrants. Now, it seems that there are between somewhere between 10 to 12 million people who would fall into this category of undocumented. 2015, there was a study done that said there was about just shy of, of, of 12 million. Then Pew Research did a study here uh, recently in 2017 that said it looks like there may be somewhere around 10.5 million. So it may have decreased in the years that they've progressed forward. But somewhere between 10 and 12 million people who fall into this category. And I found this interesting that of those who are characterized as undocumented, about half, somewhere around 45%, entered the country legally. That is, that they came here on a, a visa. And for whatever reason, they have uh, either overstayed their visa, they have worked without authorization, they have dropped out of school, or in some other way violated the conditions of their specific visa, and thus they fall into the category of undocumented. Now, as it pertains to the legal system, I found out, which is interesting, that crossing the border is considered under the legal system a misdemeanor illegally. Uh, if you're a person who has overstayed your uh, visa or you've worked without authorization from the government or, or you've not fulfilled some obligation or violated some obligation of your visa, that is a civil matter and is pursued in civil court. The only time it becomes a felony, it seems like, as if you're deported and then you return without permission to the United States, and at that point, it becomes a felony. Now, to throw into all this mix, when we compare the United States to other countries in the world, the United States still currently has one of the most open immigration policies compared to all other countries in the world. 
And the reason why I share these things with you is because wrong information or misleading rhetoric can cloud our views as it relates to this and other topics. And this becomes more problematic when you enter the Christian arena and environments like churches or Christian circles. And here's the reason why. Pew Research also did a study on immigration in relationship to views of believers who declare themselves to be Christian. And what the, what the research or survey found out was that religion or the Bible has little to no influence on the way people, that is believers, Christians, think about the topic of immigration. Another study said that most believers, Christians, form their opinion about this specific topic of immigration by what they view in the mass media. And that's how they form their opinions, or we form our opinions. It's not scriptural based, it's society based. So how do we wade into this matter? I think first of all, as Christians, a good place for us to start is to simply remember that although the church and the government, as we've seen in this series, are both servants of God, they serve different purposes of God in the world. Professor of political science at Wheaton, Dr. Mark Olmstead, said it this way. He said, guided by Augustinian principles, I have suggested the church's primary task is to proclaim the gospel, the good news of the personal salvation through Christ's atonement, and to illuminate how believers should carry out their spiritual responsibilities in the temporal city, here referring to the state. The state, by contrast, is charged with the responsibility of making and enforcing laws in order to maintain social order and advance public justice. While the city of God is guided by love, the city of man relies on coercive force to ensure compliance with his laws. But he goes on to say something interesting. He says, but this does not mean that the churches and religious groups should refuse to be engaged with public affairs. Far from it. Instead, churches must be engaged in the city of man by carrying out their temporal responsibilities and concerns, but with care and caution. Sometimes it, is, it behooves us as believers, as servants of God, to act as Nathan to David. Now today, in light of that distinction that I've just made, I am going to spend my time focused on the church as God's servant as it relates to this issue and not the government. And so I, I, you need to know that up front so that perhaps you can adjust your expectations. But I'm going to focus on how should the church approach the topic of immigration without addressing anything about the government. And that, that's my focus for today. Now, often when it comes to these topics, we become caught up in the politics of the rhetoric that's going on around us, whether on the TV, uh, through the Internet, or our local conversations in our jobs. And if we're honest, sometimes our own self-interest trumps how we think about the issue more so than trying to be biblically informed in what is a, a God-honoring attitude and action towards those or this whole debate about immigration. And sometimes what happens and when we do that is that in the process of arguing our specific case or view, we forget that the people we're talking about are human beings who are made also in God's images. 
And in the midst of all this touchiness, we must keep that in mind. And that's why each week we've been pulling this thread forward through the entire series, consistently referring back to Genesis 1, through 28, because in all of these topics we're addressing, we're talking about real people's lives. Two stories that happened this week that reminded me of this, not saying what, whether their actions are right or wrong, but simply saying that it brought this to mind. One was a story about an El Salvadorian man who lives in El Salvador uh, in a country that's war-torn, uh, controlled by gangs, and he had been shot, and he has a little nine-year-old son, and one of the interviewers from America was down interviewing him about why is it he has the strong desire to try to make his way to America, whether that's legally or illegally. He's going to try legally first, but if it doesn't work, he's open to the idea of trying to get in illegally. And the guy was asking him, why is this? And he was saying, because I want a different life for my son, and I'm afraid that if he stays here, he's going to die. A woman from Mexico named Elena, they shared her story. She talked about this whole issue of trying to find work and being unable to work. And this was what, what was driving her to want to get to America, that there was what she had heard from an outside perspective, that this was a, a, a land of, of, of opportunity and the, the, the little she could make here would be even greater than what she could earn there. So she wanted to, to get here. It's reasons that when we look at immigration from a historical standpoint that we found that drove others here as well. Simply recall our history. Uh, it were many Irish immigrants, German immigrants, Russian Jews, and Italian immigrants came to America for some of those same reasons. And with those things in mind, then I ask, in light of that, what should the people of God's attitude be towards those who might be defined as asylum seekers, refugees, or immigrants? How should God's people think about and interact with those people? Here's what I plan to do in this time that we have together remaining. I want to show you uh, two of the main sets of scriptural ideas that come to bear on the Christian community that has caused us to become polarized. And then what I want to do is draw upon the research done by a commission from the Missouri Center of the Lutheran Church that was published in 2012 to give you some of the excerpts from this 60-page document. I'm not going to give you all 60 pages, but some excerpts from those because they have, frankly, taken more time to think thoughtfully about this than I have. The reality is I've taken about a week to think about these issues. They took years. I'm one person, they were many in the commission, in community, weighing out, dialoguing about how it is there should be a guide for Christian behavior as it comes to this issue. And so I, I think there are good, relevant things that they are saying in light of all the things that I encountered that help us to frame out a potential starting point of how to approach this issue as Christians. And so I believe that it will be to our benefit to listen to what they have to say, and I want to share that with you in light of also of what we share from scripture. So let's get into the text first of all. I want to turn back to, to Leviticus chapter 19, but I want to jump a couple of verses earlier to set the context for us. So we're back in Leviticus 19, but now we're going to pick up at verse 17. And I'll read the text to you here in just a moment when it comes up. This is God talking to his people, Israel. And he says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. 
You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. So God is regulating how he wants relationships to work in his people group, the people that he's created and founded and took time to develop the nation of Israel. He wants to regulate how those relationships work. And he also does this in this specific text by summarizing all of the law that he's been giving about relationships and how those relationships are to work. And he sums them up uh, first in a negative way, and then he turns around and restates it in a positive way. This text ought to be familiar to you because this is a, a, a text that is rehearsed or often referred to in church because it, it's what Jesus gave the answer to. It's the text he quoted when he talked about the greatest commandment. And the text here is referring to, uh, as God summarizes the attitude of one Israelite toward another, he summarizes it as it ought to be one of love. That's how he summarizes it up. Now, for the Israelite, they're probably like us who struggle with sin, and, and we like it when people limit stuff for us because we like to limit things. And so often we can uh, look and draw our circle as close to ourselves as we can. And so God has pushed the circle outside of the family to the nation of Israel, and, and it can be easy for an Israelite to say, all right, all right, so they are some way related to me because they're a descendant of Jacob. I'm a descendant of Jacob. We have some things in common. Okay, I could get with trying to love them, though, although sometimes they frustrate me, right? And, and, that, and that's my circle, and I'll draw that circle. It'll be a little bit bigger than what I wanted, but I'm willing to draw that circle of care around myself. And just when they're about to say, I, I'm good with that circle, God pushes on the circle to broaden it. Let me show you that in the text, verse 33 and 34. We read this already, but I'll read it again. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land... You shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So God pushes on the circle, and he says, listen, that circle of care has got to move beyond just the boundaries of Israel to care for others who come from outside, from other nations, and dwell in your land. He says, I want you to treat them in the same way I want you to treat your native-born relative. That is, that I want you to have your uh, relationship with them be dictated by love. And then he gives the reason for that. He says, the reason I want you to do that is because I want you to think about your own past. Where were you at when I came and got you? You were slaves. You were foreigners in Egypt. That's part of your history. And in light of that, that needs to influence your presence in light of what happened in your past. So what he says to them is, in light of who you are, where you've come from, and what I have done for you in your life, that should now influence your present thinking about how you engage others who might have similar circumstances in these current events of today. Perhaps this was the passage that Jesus had in mind when he spoke about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because as we think and look through the Old Testament passages, what we find is that it is littered with God's concern for the foreigner, the sojourner, the outsider, or what we might call today the immigrant. And often the foreigner was grouped in 
what was in society of their time considered to be the big three vulnerable populations that were going on in the foreigner God added to regularly to this group. And those three other groups were the woman whose husband had passed away. She was a widow. The child whose father was no longer present or no parent there to advocate on their behalf, the orphan. And then those who were financially destitute, the poor. And with those vulnerable members of society, God brings in this other one from the outside and says, they belong here too. They belong here too. Why is that? Well, it has to do just with the way things worked in ancient society, specifically here in Israel. Vulnerable, uh, foreigners were vulnerable in their society because of the nature of the way society worked in those days. So society in the past days often relied upon the extended family structure to be your social support in times of need. Now, what was different about the foreigner is they had moved out of their family environment, relocated in Israel, and now they had distanced themselves from their family environment. There was no way for them to get support. They couldn't send funds by mail to get to their family members over here. It didn't work that way in that time. And then in light of the fact that they were not descendants of Jacob, the law prevented them from being landowners in the population generally. And so in light of that reality, and since it was an agrarian society, if you didn't own land, it was hard to provide for yourself and for your family, which meant now that your options for work and providing were limited, which means you often had to do menial work in order to be able to survive. You want a historical example? Simply think back to what happened in Ruth's life in the book of Ruth, and you'll have a good example. But let me give you two law examples of how God fleshes this out in his law for his people. For that, we'll turn to the book of Deuteronomy. There are numbers of passages. We don't have time to cover them all. If we did, all we would simply do is just read through the Old Testament, and that would be the whole service. So I, ha I have to pick two representative passages to, to, to give you a flavor for it so that you can understand. You can, in your personal devotional time, look up every passage if you want to. Let me start off with Deuteronomy chapter 10. We find this verse starting at verse 17. Uh, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Please notice in the text here in verse 18 that God's love is displayed in tangible ways. It's not simply uh, an emotional inward state, but it comes out in his actions of how he treats those who are in a vulnerable state in society, specifically those parties that I mentioned. Here he demonstrates his love in providing food and clothing for those who are in a vulnerable position here, the foreigner or the immigrant. And as a result of that, he then commands his people to imitate his behavior as they relate to those who are considered outsiders. That brings us to Deuteronomy chapter 24. We find this. You shall not pervert the justice due 
to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take the widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were slave in e a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. And so in this text, God says, when it comes to legal matters here, at least in his people for that ancient time, that he says, listen, I want you to act in a just way toward them. Don't take advantage of them because they're in a weakened position in society, but deal with them with fairness and justice because that's how I dealt with you and remember where you used to be when I found you and delivered you. And it's this thread that we see along with the thread of hospitality that is brought into the New Testament as Jesus gives the command to his disciples in a similar way. Love your neighbor as yourself. And just in case we would want to limit neighbor like we might want to do, like they might have wanted to do in ancient times, and as those who were in the context of Jesus' day wanting to draw the circle closer, Jesus, by the parable of the Good Samaritan, as we've discussed before, pushes the boundary outward. And then just in case we think Jesus wants to stop there, Jesus goes on to do something radical, and he knocks the boundary down and says in the Sermon on the Mount, not only should your circle of care include those who are like you, include those who are foreigners, but it should also include those you would declare to be enemies. So much so that you ought to love in the same way God has already loved by meeting their need when they're in a position of vulnerability. And just in case you think that thread got dropped with Jesus, the apostles pick it up and they run with it. James picks it up. Paul picks it up. Paul picks up the thread so much so that he says, listen, if you're trying to please God and you're thinking about the law and how that's lived out as a person who now's heart has been turned towards God, all you need to remember is this. If you love your neighbor as yourself, then you will fulfill all that the law was about. He, he pulls it forward. They, they, they won't let the thread go. In light of what the text teaches in the Old Testament, in light of what Jesus teaches, and in light of what his apostles uh, lay upon the church, I will say this in summary. As the people of God, we should view those who are asylees, immigrants, and refugees as neighbors. And if we view them as neighbors, then the command for us is to love. That's what the text lays upon us. And that means that at times our love must simply not remain an inward attitude, but be demonstrated in our outward action and how we relate to their needs. But there is a word of caution for scriptural interpretation that, that we must hear as it comes to this topic of immigration. And here's where I want to begin to bring out the thoughtful reflection of the commission upon this. I want you to hear what they have to say here. They say a common approach to such scriptural text today would tend to argue that love for, for the immigrant neighbor in Scripture trumps important concerns related to immigration law. It must be noted, however, that immigrants in the Old Testament times did not live in our modern era of sovereign nation states where immigration of foreign nationals is arguably much more regulated according to state law. While biblical mandates to love and welcome the stranger in our midst as our neighbors stand as God's law, we cannot ignore the demands that civil laws place upon citizens and immigrants alike in the contemporary U.S. and an international context. 
Moreover, we must affirm the right of the state to establish laws and policies concerning a matter such as immigration, including laws that limit immigration in ways for protection and welfare of its citizens. Matters such as national security and human trafficking, for example, are legitimate and necessary areas of governance which seek to restrain evil and promote good. As stated above, when using biblical mandates in the church to love and welcome the stranger, we cannot ignore the distinction between the spiritual and the temporal realms. In addition to loving those who are from another place, we find another set of scriptures that are also equally binding upon our conscience that we must take into consideration as we approach the issue of immigration. Uh, God, uh, Pastor, Pastor Mike has already shared with this as he talked about God and our role as citizens in government. Let me take you to that text, Romans 13. I won't read all seven verses, just the first two. Paul says to believers who are in the church at Rome, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, just in case you think this is a Apostle Paul on a hobby horse of his, let me let you hear what the Apostle Peter says about the same subject matter. In his letter, he wrote something similar. The Apostle Peter said this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. What we see in the text is that there is a tension that happens where there is a, a command from God that lays upon us the responsibility to be submissive to the governing authorities. Here in this context, it means to follow the laws. Paul gives an example of this when he says later in that, the, last, the latter part of those verses where he says, one example is pay your taxes. Right? And he's reckoning back to what Jesus said during his own ministry when someone was trying to trap him in a governmental issue. And they said to him, hey, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar in light of what you're teaching about God? And you remember what Jesus said. He said, give me a coin. He took out the, the coin we might take out a paper bill. And he said, whose image is on here? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar." But Jesus, as, as we often don't like to do, Jesus pressed the issue further. He wouldn't stop where people wanted him to stop. He would give them more than what they were asking for. And so he went on to say, and in light of that, he said, there's another image on someone else, on you. Whose image is on you? But well, we know from the text, God's image. And he said, in light of that, you ought to give to God what is God's. That means you ought to give yourself to God. Give to Caesar what is his, but give to God what is his, which is you. Peter then lays this out for him. He says, this means what we ought to show honor and respect to those who hold authority and have been elected and placed over us. And, and in those times, they weren't elected. They were just put into place. But, but in this case, elected and put in issues of authority, we ought to show respect to them because that is from God also. Here, I call upon the commission again in light of this to give us thought for reflection about this particular matter. The, the, the commission writes, to sum up, 
we must acknowledge that while the prophetic and apostolic scriptures give ample evidence of Yahweh's will for his people to love strangers and aliens by attending to their bodily and spiritual needs, the scriptures do not speak directly to the questions about how the church today should think about or deal with con contemporary immigration law in general or illegal immigration in particular. Scriptural teaching on immigrants, therefore, cannot be directly translated into current immigration laws or policies. While scripture does not offer a specific position on immigration law, it does bind Christians to obey the civil authorities, including laws dealing with immigration. Both are the will of God and therefore must be carried out. This means concretely that we must love immigrants, show them fairness, and promote their lives and well-being regardless of their legal status in society and at the same time submit to the temporal authorities and thus obey the civil laws they enact, promote, and enforce in society, including those laws that deal with immigrants and their legal status. Given these equally valid demands that God's commandments place on Christians, it is not uncommon for brothers and sisters in Christ to struggle with and argue among themselves about the best ways to be faithful to what God desires of his people. There is a reality that there must be some acknowledgement of the basic assumptions underlying our discourses about immigrants, which help us to recognize that brothers and sisters in Christ, with an equal desire to be faithful to God's commands, may actually disagree on how best to carry it out when it comes to dealing with those who we might consider to be our immigrant neighbor. They go on to say about immigrants this, immigrants are much more basically human beings, God's creatures, and sinners just like each one of us, and their physical and spiritual needs must be at very least taken into account in any discussion about the role of the individual Christian and the church in dealing with this particular group. As I said before, the matter is extremely complex. There are numerous uh, contributing factors that have to be weighed and thought about if one is to have a thoughtful opinion or informed opinion about these matters. And in the light of that reality, we just need to exercise grace with one another as we talk about these matters, realizing that for some of us, some issues will regulate or resonate more with us than others and seeking to work out the tension that we see in Scripture as we seek to relate to our immigrant neighbor. Now, for some of us who recall history here in the United States and things that have happened, this naturally raises a question from us, especially in light of some of the previous sermons that we've already done then does it ever occur or there, is there ever a time when the law of God and the law of man will disagree? Well, I want to offer you three examples from Scripture where this is true, and then we'll reflect on that. There was a, a policy back in Egypt in the book of Exodus where because the people were becoming too numerous, uh, that is, the Hebrews who would become the nation of Israel, uh, they feared, the Egyptians feared them, and so they instituted a governmental policy to kill off the newborn males. So they had these two uh, women who were midwives that were working in the industry and said, listen, you've got to abort them when they show up. 
The midwives decided that they would not follow the law of the land, but would instead save the lives of the boys, to which the officials were trying to figure out why they were doing this. And of course, uh, the women said, hey, you know, they come out too fast and we can't really get it worked out. They just, they just show up and we just, oh, we, oh they're here already. Oh, well, you know, we tried. Now, what's interesting in the text is that God says, although they did civilly disobey, God blessed them because they sought to preserve life when there was a policy, a law that was enacted that was wrong. A similar thing happened in Daniel. He was in government affairs, uh, and, and because of the way politics works sometimes, there are parties who can lobby for certain things, and because of influence, they can get certain laws passed. That's just the way politics work in reality. And, and we have to be... Uh, kind to our politicians. They are trying to negotiate lots of people's desires who don't always agree with us and they're trying to negotiate all those things. It's difficult. That's what I found out this week. It's hard. It's hard work. You can't always get it worked out and figure out how to do that. That's difficult. So we ought to be patient with them as they seek to try to work those things out. But on this particular instance, there were some people who didn't like Daniel. They were also in political office. And they, uh, in light uh, of the way the system worked and the government officials worked, they were able to get a, a no prayer policy passed. And so their worship would be directed in one direction toward the king. And we like stuff when it's about us. And the king liked that idea. And so he implemented that policy and it became law of the land. And now what did Daniel do on the day that the policy was signed into law? He did what he always did. He went to his window, got down as he had done three times a day, and he prayed. Now he did suffer for that. That's why he was thrown into the lion's den. Right? There were some implications for that. We see this also play out in the New Testament when uh, uh, the apostles in the early book of Acts, uh, there's a policy where they encounter government officials and the government officials say to them, hey, look, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. There's no more. There's no Jesus preaching name. I'm telling you, this is the policy. We're not having that. And what do, what do Peter and the other apostles say to him? Is it better or to obey God or to obey, obey man. And then sometimes there are sometimes where there are some things in society in which there are sometimes when it is called for civil disobedience. And so now we must ask the question, is this one of those cases? Here I draw upon again the commission's thoughtful reflection. They say scripture requires Christians to obey God rather than man when the civil authority and its laws are set in opposition to the law of God. Christians obey God rather than man when a civil law conflicts with a clear precept of God. And here's the question that they ask after looking at the laws and research. But when is the case in current, when is that the case in current immigration law? See, most Christians are not against immigration and law in general, but some, if not many, question how fair and reasonable some aspects of such law are. What is an appropriate response when there is no clear and broad consensus among Christians on the way in which immigration law specifically conflicts with God's law? Well, if a Christian considers a civil law to be in conflict with the higher law of God and thus decides to engage in some form of civil disobedience, he is encouraged to carry out his act of disobedience in a nonviolent manner and to direct his act of disobedience as precisely as possible against the specific law or practice which violates his conscience. He must also be willing to bear the cross and thus suffer the potentially punitive consequences of his actions. Furthermore, 
because it is not always clear among Christians when immigration laws actually go against God's will, it must be expected that legitimate and passionate disagreement among them will take place on the godliness and justice of particular immigration laws. See, the reality is that in a less than perfect world, civil law, including immigration law, will not always be fair, just, or adequate in every aspect or for every neighbor. But Christians who are equally committed to obeying the civil authorities will differ on how they respond to a particular immigration law. See, what the commission says here is because it's not always clear as we would like it to be, there's going to be disagreement where in the believing community, some will feel like it does violate God's law and others will feel like it does not. And so in light of that, we have to be gracious toward one another as we seek to try to work it out and understand how what Scripture says in all of what it says, not just certain verses that we want to lean on, but all of what Scripture says is to be worked out in the Christian's life in light of the law, which as history has proven does change over time. How do we work that out in light of current law and in parameters? And they say to us, be gracious with one another as we all seek to try to figure out what this looks like. The other matter that I wrestled, that I wrestled with this week but I was not able to come to an answer on is this. How does what God has done through Jesus Christ, the good news, come to bear on how I view, think about, and inter interact with the idea of immigration, immigrants as people, and the law of our land. Where do I start it? One article suggested a starting point is just simply altering our view. Daniel Darling put it this way, it is our duty to view immigrants not as problems to be solved, but as people for whom Jesus died. What are some practical things that Christians can do? There's a variety of recommendations. The commission recommends a few things. I'll share those with you and some others have recommended things and I'll share those with you as well. The commission says, listen, as believers, we may proclaim the gospel and teach God's word to immigrants regardless of their status, wherever they fall at on the category. Because Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Now, before he said that, he laid down his authority. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been placed into his hands. And in light of that authority that he has, he commissioned his disciples. He said that I am telling you by the highest authority, you can go out and proclaim the gospels despite whatever the national laws are. Doesn't mean you won't suffer for them, but you need to understand that there's a greater authority than what the nations have laid out. And I'm telling you to make disciples. Another way is to offer assistance to immigrants through church ministries of relief and church mercy like we have here, regardless of their legal status. We can provide food and clothing and shelter, medical assistance and child care. At least as I understand the law up to this point, things may have changed recently. One may help immigrants in the sense of trying to work out their legal status in the country by helping them find lawyers who are experts in this area or getting, connecting them with advocacy groups to reunite families who've been separated through enforcement uh, of certain immigration laws or policies or helping those who are seeking asylum to find who they need to get into contact with to be able to help them to, to file the right paperwork because of fear of persecution or death from their country of origin. There is reality, at least up to now, 
as far as I know, that there's no requirement of the church to try to figure out people's legal status before we can help them. That does, however, mean, though, but in light of the law, that also the church should not enter into hiring people if we know that they're undocumented. Because that would be then to violate the law of the land. Some other suggestions that have come up, which of many have suggested this, is that a church ought to offer English as a second language class, which is helping immigrants no matter what their legal status is. And we do that every Monday night. We do that here at this church. You can offer financial support to organizations who are working both locally and abroad with issues because there are global issues that, uh, that relate to migration that, that have to be taken into account as we think about these things that cause people to become immigrants, refugees, and asylees. Another recommendation is build a relationship with someone who is an immigrant. It will help you to better understand their lives. And I would say, most importantly, pray. Pray for them. When you get down in the morning, you get down at night, or you get down at lunch to pray, don't simply ask God to see about the needs of your family and your children and your relatives. There are others who have families and children and relatives, and they're just as concerned about the welfare of their families as we are about ours. And because God has pressed out the boundaries we also are to include them in our circle of prayer and care and concern. The issues are big. Not one person can solve them, and thus we need a God who has control over the entire world to reach into these affairs, to put the right people in place, to give them the right influences so that things can be changed if they need to be changed in ways that uh, would benefit others or help them in their journey. What does this look like when we live it out in real life? Jenny Lang, who works with World Relief, shared a story about how she, uh, as a Christian and American citizen, engaged in this particular case. Uh, on this particular instance, she talked about how her from her church that she was working with helped a, a Syrian family relocate to not far from here, to the city of, of Baltimore. And in that, we see some ways in which it worked out. Uh, this particular family, a, a father and mother, and they have four children, uh, had been living in Jordan, but they had to relocate to the United States because the mother and two of the children had a, a unique medical condition in which they needed what we had here to be able to help them. And so they were able to, to relocate here as refugees. And when they showed up, what, what the church did was one of the churches around had a, uh, a, a place like a parish or something like that, a, a parsonage, to where they could put the family. So the church gave that to them to allow them to have a place to stay because they didn't have a place to stay and provide it for them in that way. In addition to that, when the, uh, the mother and the two children were at the hospital, another believer who happened to be a physician by trade who worked at the hospital and knew they were there, took time to sit down with them, to be an advocate, to explain and to, to help them to understand what was going on and how, uh, how things work here in America as opposed to in their country and how the medical practices work and what, what, what was going on and to, to show them how, how to navigate these waters. There were other believers who, uh, who had the ability, uh, like our ESL uh, tutors on Monday nights, went to their house every day to help them adopt the language because that is one of the largest barriers to being able to negotiate in a society. Just simply travel to another country and see how, how hard it is to operate when you don't know the language, right? It's difficult. I've been there in that situation, and those things are difficult. And so picking up the language is a great necessity so that you can navigate your way uh, in the culture. So believers realized that and sought to meet that need. 
Other believers who had the ability uh, to speak Arabic uh, would go over when it was time to pay bills and sit down with them and say, let me explain to you how bills work. Let's look at your bills. Let me talk to you about what's going on. Let me explain to you how to read these and understand them. And let me show you how to pay bills so that you could be able to operate in this society because when you move cultures, things are different. So believers helped them with that. One of the other things that just warmed my heart was that when Jenny who had been uh, keeping relationship with this particular family, uh, decided to invite them out for the Christmas party to their church. When she got to connect with them and call them up and sat down and talk with them and said, hey, I want to invite you over to our church. We're having a Christmas party. They, were, they had to respectfully decline. Not that they wanted to, but because their schedule was already full. So many believers from other churches had already signed them up to come that their Christmas schedule was already full. And it was so nice to hear that the believers had interacted with them in this way to be able to love them in very tangible ways. That's what's called upon us as the people of God. We're called to love our neighbor in very tangible ways. So I asked my daughter, because I I like to practice my sermons before I I deliver them to you. And I do that, because that's what I was taught in seminary. So sometimes I share with my daughter although she sometimes rebels, but she's often kind. And she'll listen to them and say, okay, daddy. And she'll sit down. And so I shared the sermon with her. And I said, sweetheart, I'm just trying to under- see if, if what I say, say makes sense. Do you understand what daddy's trying to say in the sermon? And she said, well, let me sum it up for you, daddy. And I'll share this with you. She said this. This is what I got out of it, daddy. Love your immigrant neighbor and follow the law unless it disagrees with God's law. That's it. And that's an 11-year-old child. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I want to lift up, first of all, all of those who serve on our behalf in political office. I want to ask that you have mercy on them. I realize how difficult these things are. And so oftentimes, Lord, as in the past, as I've been in conversations, we as citizens give simplistic answers to complicated problems. And we forget of all the interests and factors that contribute to trying to work out public policy. I want to ask that you give wisdom to our leaders, Lord, all of those who sit in office, as they try to weigh out very difficult and varied interests of all kind of voters who have very different uh, beliefs, very different uh, desires that they want to see played out to advantage them or to to be in their interest and and they're trying to weigh that all out would you help them they need wisdom give that to them lord and give us patience and kindness of, of, of how to to move forward in these arenas but let us first take time to to take into account all the factors that come to bear on these things and not just simply spout off because of something we heard on the news without actually knowing what's really going on because we've done no reading or investigation into it And help us to be patient when things don't turn out the way we think and we get frustrated knowing, Lord, that you are ultimately sovereign and that we can trust in you, we can bring our concerns to you and we can find uh, considerate ways to make those, those desires known. And help us, Lord, as we seek to navigate these tensions you have placed upon us, how we are to live out loving our neighbor and ourselves and the the current laws that govern our country and be submissive and to know clearly what we're to do 
We need guidance, Lord. We can't do it on our own. We trust that you would guide us. Would you do that for us, Lord? And help us to be patient with one another when we run into another brother or sister in Christ who thinks very differently than how we do. Help us not to demonize them, to call them names, to say negative things about them when they think differently than how we think. Because they're trying to be faithful too. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Would you stand?